The following talk is given by Tara Brock, meditation teacher, psychologist, and author. Good evening. We've had 48 hours, two days. I'm always in awe of how coming together with this intention to pay attention just keeps on increasing sensitivity and getting to be in groups with you and then sense in the hall how that's unfolding is... uh, just really inspiring. You know, I'm I'm aware of how that sensitivity translates into touching more of a sense of peace at times or being outside and, whoa, the, the magic of the outdoors. And a number of people have mentioned what that's like, that sense of the beauty or the metta just tenderizing. And also with that sensitivity, that more awareness, we notice more, um, the layers that we haven't been paying attention to become more apparent. So uh, we start reporting with each other on uh, perhaps the feelings of shame that we haven't been paying attention to, or anger that's been lurking, or uh, feelings of sorrow, fear. And one of the biggest illusions that comes up for us as as the energies get strong, especially if they're sticky, if they really have some hold. Uh, the biggest illusion that that I notice really is that it's very personal. This is my problem. This is my struggle, and um, something's wrong. It really shouldn't be happening. If things were going right, this wouldn't be happening. And. Um, I'm curious how many of you have been tracking some of that undercurrent of something's wrong, just being mindful of that. Can I just see? But Yeah, good. Thank you. That's helpful. If you look under pretty much any of the energies that are challenging and you really begin to investigate in the body, um, what we begin to find, this is under whether it's anger or obsessive thinking, judgment, what we begin to sense is that there's this primal place of fear. It's a kind of a clutch. It's uh, perhaps the most primal appearance of Mara, who's in the Buddhist mythology is the god of the shadow side, you know, that Mara's appearing and basically asking attention. And so what I'd like to explore tonight is the gateway of fear, how we transform consciousness in our engagement with fear. And when I say that, with that sense that something's wrong, and for you, you might say, well, you know, it's not fear that I've been really experiencing, it's been anger, it's been grief, and you can work with any of the raw energies in the same way. But the basic notion of it is a gateway. And so you might consider this talk as sacred fertilizer part two. Is that okay? (laughs) Okay. What a great term, right? (laughs) So last month I had a a session with a new mindfulness teacher 
and she basically, her, what she was saying to me is there's really only two major forces in my life that really matter right now. And one of them is this growing love, just feeling in love with so much. Tenderness is this love of nature and beauty and humans. And she said, and the other, equally there, is fear. And it's so painful and it takes over and it gets in the way. And I'm here because I want to talk about working with fear. My question to her was, what is your intuition about the relationship between those two? And I'll tell you what she shared, because she kind of went home with that inquiry. And the reason that I posed it is because in my own life and and everything that I see unfolding for most of us, fear's not in the way, it is the way, you know, to be cliché, but it's really the path. We are learning to be with this organismic being that's right here. And if we don't directly open to the vulnerability that's in our body, if we don't directly open to it, we don't discover the openness that's the most pure expression of, of love. Okay. So that, that we have to open, and when I say open to fear, open to the truth of impermanence, that there is no ground, that there's nothing we can hold on to, to the truth of loss. It's like they go together, opening to, to loss equals discovering the openness, the space of tenderness that is the most pure expression of love. In Asia, the Asian art really shows us, I think, in a really wonderful way. And Rinpoche, and by the way, when I say Rinpoche, that's an honorific way. It's a title for an ordained teacher in the Tibetan tradition. And so just in case that's confusing in my in my references, last night described a, a sense of the, the kind of deity that expresses, that's kind of an archetypal deity that expresses. And in, in Asian art, fear and all the related shadow emotions express as these animal-headed deities. That's one expression. And you'll see in the, in the mandalas, as you're going towards the center of the mandala, or in the temple as the gateway right to the sacred center of the temple that you have to encounter and move through the animal-headed deities in order to arrive in sacred space. They are the path. It's our engagement with fear. It's the quality of presence that we bring to fear that really determines the shape of our life experience. So one inquiry, in a way, for us is, well, what if we really trusted that? Trusted that when this raw, vulnerable, uncomfortable, unpleasant, yucky experience came up, what if we really trusted that there was something about really opening, surrendering into, dying into, that was our freedom? 
This is uh, Srinur Sargadatta. He says, as long as you imagine yourself to be something tangible and solid, a thing among things, you seem short-lived and vulnerable, and of course you will feel anxious to survive. But when you know yourself to be beyond space and time, you will be afraid no longer. The pathway to knowing yourself, the timeless, to knowing yourself as that timeless, formless awareness, is opening to the experience of vulnerability right in this body right here. And I feel like that's an important thing to add, that when, we're, when we can get that teaching that, well, if you really know that you're this formless awareness, then you won't be afraid. Then there's a part of us that's almost trying to get out of this stuff and out there, you know, away from the fear. But the way is actually through to discover that formless, timeless presence. Many of you have heard the saying that no mud no lotus, right? It's like that. So, that's not the way things are from the perspective of the separate self, and it's really important to take into consideration how this separate self-character has it figured out. And through the lens of separation, we're on a trip, and it's going to end, and there's a lot of losses, and pain is part of loss and it's no fun and we don't want to experience it it's like uh, Carlin says no pain, no pain (laughs) you know so the primal mood of the separate self is fear it's like it is holding tight to its existence and it's fearing a loss of connection to life to aliveness, it's living in this uncertainty. Victor Yalom, who's a psychologist and also a cartoonist, had a cartoon with a, in a therapy session, and there's a therapist, and then on the couch is the Grim Reaper, and the Grim Reaper is saying, no, Doc, I'm afraid it's your time that's up. You know? It's like that some of you might know this one of this hitchhiker and he's out there hitchhiking and a hearse comes by and slows down and he goes, no thanks, I'm not going that far, (laughs) you know. You get the idea. It's a real core part of our humanness through that sense of a separate self which we live in a lot of moments that we want to hold on to life, we don't want to lose things. When there's a sense of loss or there's that fear that comes up, we are totally wired and geared to do anything we can. We're organized to do whatever we can to to get away from the raw feelings and to protect ourselves from loss. That's our wiring. And I want to make clear that it is really part of what we're designed to do to listen to the message of fear. I mean, fear is nature's protector. So this isn't saying we should ignore fear and, and or, or try to, you know, transcend it in any way. Fear lets us know when we need to do something to take care of our body, mind, and psyche. Healthy fear. And there is such a thing. I mean, if a 
tornado is swirling in your direction. You don't want to sit still and open to the breath and feel the vulnerability, right? You want, right, is, you know what I mean? Or let's say you get a, some pain in, in your arm and you're feeling some squeeze in the chest and your ankles are swelling. You know, don't ask who's experiencing this, right? <laughs> you know what I mean, though. It's, it's like we pay attention. And I'll share a story that, uh, because a friend that's here uh, sent it to me some years ago that I've always loved that I feel illustrates this nature's protector idea. I've just adapted it a little. A wealthy man went on a safari in Africa, took his beloved pet poodle for company, and one day the poodle starts chasing some butterflies, finds himself completely lost, trying to find his way back, and then he sees this leopard approaching rapidly. So he thinks to himself, uh-oh. Luckily, he noticed some bones on the ground close by and immediately turned his back to the approaching cat and started to chew on them. Just as the leopard was about to pounce, the poodle called out, boy, that was one delicious leopard. I'm still hungry. I wonder if there's another one around. Upon hearing this, the leopard halted his attack mid-stride, a look of abject terror on his face. He crawled off into some nearby trees, thinking, phew, that was a close call. That, that creature nearly got me. <laughs> Meanwhile, a monkey had been watching the whole scene from high in a nearby tree. The monkey called out to the leopard, promising some valuable information in return for the leopard's protection. So the leopard agreed to the deal and was furious to find out he had just been made a fool of. Leopard, now with with the monkey on his back, took off to find and eat the conniving canine. Once again, the poodle saw the leopard, and this time with the monkey on its back, put two to two together, you know, figured out what was going on, realized that he wouldn't have time to escape. So he sat down again with his back to his attackers, pretending he hadn't seen them. And just when they were close enough to hear, he exclaimed, Where is that damn monkey? I sent him off an hour ago to bring me another leopard. (laughs) So being clever, you know, figuring things out, you know, it's part of uh, our strategy to protect ourselves. So fear becomes suffering when it oversteps its bounds, when reactivity, when that kind of accelerator gets jammed and we're in chronic fear reactivity, when it's really on overtime. And, and it's in that way that rather than that kind of healthy sensing of, oh, danger, what do I need to do? We're in kind of a chronic state of, of reacting, a fight, flight, freeze. And what, what happens during that time? You know, we disconnect from our body. We go and our, our mind starts speeding up. We get defensive. We get aggressive. We're in a kind of chronic sense of around the corner, there's something too much to handle. So we're in a state of chronic tension. We're in what's called the body of fear. And it's a language I'll use for the rest of this talk. And when we're in the body of fear... It takes over our sense of who we are. Okay, so we're living in something smaller. We're living in a biochemistry and a set of beliefs and a a storyline of a threatened self that completely separates us from any sense 
of the awareness and the love and the beauty and the wonder that's an intrinsic part of our being. We're cut off. So it's a sad irony that fear's motivation is to, to sustain a connection with life. And yet when it gets locked on, it actually cuts us off from our moments. Which is why so many people, you know, I've described this before, the, the greatest regret of the dying, I didn't live true to myself. That instead I lived kind of driven by fear to meet the expectations of others, other shoulds, to meet my own internalized shoulds and judgments. In other words, living as a victim of fear versus living our moments in a way that creative and engaged. So the first step really of waking up out of the body of fear, beginning to engage the uh, animal-headed goddess of fear, is to be able to recognize, to really recognize when you, in your life, get into that state of reactivity. And for most of us, it's a combination of what our bodies are doing and the kind of thinking in our mind and the kind of behaviors when we're in the body of fear. You might even, as we continue through this, just sense where you know the, the key triggers are and what happens to you. So you can just sense the profile. Well, what really... What is that shape of the body of fear for this being right here? And for some it might be real out-and-out fear when we're caught maybe around flying or public speaking or certain uh, social phobias. And others it might be a kind of chronic anxieties that come up around any performing, around being with other people or certain other people the chronic anxiety of getting things checked off our to-do list, you know. That sense that there's not enough time. So we start watching and we sense, well, what happens in my body? I know for myself that I get locked into my shoulders coming forward and tight. Many people get their shoulders up and forward, their head forward, their back a bit hunched, the chest sunken. So rather than a temporary reaction to fear, to healthy fear, nature's protector, it becomes a suit of armor. And for most of us, it's not in consciousness. The chronic tightening in the body is not in consciousness. One of the places for me that it's been most powerful to begin to sense the body of fear is in the belly. It's known that our, our gut tightens when, you know, there's a nexus of nerves there and it's where we digest life experience. Um, but I, I've found that even when I'm not aware of being afraid, as I start getting more and more embodied, I can sense a kind of undercurrent of vulnerability and there's a, a kind of plate or tension or tightness in the belly and I can't willfully soften it. It's just a kind of chronic holding and that's only times really of expansiveness that I can sense there's a lot of flu- flow and openness and it's, and it's much more porous. So we begin to get to know our body of fear. 
Chogyam Trungpa said, it's like we're a bunch of tense muscles protecting our existence. We get to know how the mind works. Most of us are familiar with how much time we spend worrying, are figuring out things. I mean, have you noticed how many moments there's some, in some way you're trying to figure out something, like there's this, always this problem you're trying to gnaw on? Have you noticed that? Yeah, we figure a lot. It said that we have 60,000 thoughts a day, and 98% of them we had yesterday. <laughs> So as one friend said today, these appearances can get a little boring, you know. It's like the guy entering the desert and he sees a sign, he's driving, and it says, you and your own tedious thoughts, next 600 miles, you know. (laughs) So there's how the mind works in the body of fear. And then there's our behaviors. And I suspect if if I asked you, you know, so what are your fear-driven behaviors? How do you move away from presence? It's a really valuable inquiry. For many of us, the way that we do it is we speed up. It's like in some way we're separate cells, we know that we're, that we're you know, going towards the finish line and who knows why it happens, but we speed up. We're going fast. For many of us, it's like our fear-based behavior is really um, judging We judge others, we attack others. For many, it's consuming. The first fear-based behavior we learned to do was eating in a way of self-soothing. Very biochemical, very... Because it's pre-verbal, a real addiction. And then it's how often we uh, get caught, you know, kind of in some way distracting ourselves in our own mind or with what's around us. One of my favorite little cartoons has a man and a woman in a living room and he's saying to her, you know, if I ever get into a vegetative state, just just pull the plug. At which point she goes over the TV set and she pulls the plug. <laughs> do, you know, do you know we, on an average, spend eight hours a day, eight hours a day in front of a screen Think of what that means, that eight hours a day we're living in a virtual reality. Very hard to stay present and really feel what's here. Eight hours a day. So, the body of fear is also a body of resisting fear. It's the way we are trying to pull away from this vulnerability and this impermanence. And the equation, we call a kind of false equation, but it it actually fits, is that fear times resistance equals suffering. That if fear arises and you're not resisting it, it becomes a gateway. If fear arises and there's resistance, the body of fear contracts, there's suffering. Because then we get identified. There's an interesting piece of research about 12 years ago a neuroscientist was researching with uh, rat pups and he noticed how playful they were just frolicking around the cage and rolling and tumbling with each other so he observed them for a few days just being live fun wild little creatures and then he introduced into the cage one hair 
one piece of fur, hair from the fur of a cat. The next 24 hours, the play completely stopped, and it never again... He removed the hair, but it never again resumed its natural levels before. And I think of that a lot, that when it's out of consciousness, when we're just in our resistance to fear, it's like there's this cat hair there, and our whole life energy is in some way reduced and confined... Our sense of our world is shrunken. So, from an evolutionary perspective, it's entirely natural that we emerge, that we have a perception of separation, that that creates all this, all this reactivity around trying to protect our existence. It's even natural that the accelerator gets jammed given certain environments and situations. The more trauma, the more jammed it gets. And, and this is part of evolution, that we have developed, the, metaphorically you can say the frontal part of the brain is the physical representation, but we've developed this capacity to be aware of our own awareness, aware of the body of fear, aware of the contraction. And that very awareness of what's happening opens us out into a larger sense of being. So we shift from fear arises and we go, our habit is fight, flight, freeze. All the things I mentioned, we go overeat, we get our minds busy, we tighten our body. The shift is from that to attend and befriend, to be with what's right here with kindness. Rumi writes of night travelers who search the darkness instead of running from it, a companionship of people willing to know their own fear. And I think of that as what we're doing here. I think of us as a companionship of people and we're doing it together because it's part of what wakes us up. It's contagious. You know, when we get, start getting on this role of really being more honest and connecting, it's, there's some contagion to, to waking up. And just facing what's here and discovering that tenderness, the awakened heart, that, that's always been there but emerges as we're present with the vulnerability. For the rest of this talk, um, it's kind of a bit of how. How do we, when we encounter the animal-headed goddesses, you know, how do we, when that vulnerability comes up, begin to work with that? How do we maintain a presence? And I'd like to explore this, to consider kind of two interweaving pathways, totally interdependent, really. And one pathway of working with fear, think of as remembrance, that we're remembering something larger. And if you think of it as ocean and waves, when we're, when we're caught in this identity of, you know, this small self-egoic identity of, fear, of waves and, and we're feeling separate, it's remembering our oceanness. 
remembering really what we're made of, the water, the awareness, the love that we belong to. That's one approach. Somehow or other guiding, directing our mind, and it comes from a very pure aspiration to remember the truth of our belonging. Okay? That's one way. And the other way of awakening through fear is to directly contact the waves with a very courageous, honest presence. And you can't contact the waves unless there's some sense of oceanness, and you can't have any sense of oceanness unless there's some contacting the waves. Does that make sense as a metaphor for you so we keep going with that one? Yeah? Okay. So we'll just start with how do we remember the truth of our a, a larger sense of belonging? Just to say that there are very immediate and direct ways we can calm the sympathetic nervous system and, and find a little more space. And, and very simple things like grounding, like feeling the earth. If you're sitting right now and just feel the weight of your bottom against the seat, your feet on the ground, palms on your thighs, and just letting that sense of gravity and connection help to reconnect you to presence. That can be very powerful, especially for people that are traumatized, just feeling that groundedness. There are ways with the breath of, of beginning to decondition what the, the sympathetic nervous system is doing when it gets us racing, when its accelerator is stuck. I'd say the simplest example of the breathing that you can explore is to breathe in and, and really fill the lungs a little, little more than usual and then a really slow out breath. So you can feel the sensations of the breath as you're exhaling. You can even try it right now. A nice, long, full in breath. And then with the out breath, really slow and feel the sensations of letting go with the out breath. just taking a pause and breathing consciously like that a few rounds begins to shift the biochemistry, begins to give you the capacity to feel your way into something larger. For some people, touching the heart and touching the belly. And it's not just a nice idea, it actually, the warmth and the contact with these, this, these clusters of nerves actually calm down the, the, the sympathetic nervous system. So again, this kind of gentle touching really, really can make a difference. But the primary pathway of enlarging that I want to uh, take some moments with is remembering love. That when the Buddha taught the loving-kindness practice, the metta practice. Initially he did it in the response to monks who were terrified of fearsome deities in the, in the forest. And without going into the full story, the, the practice of metta softened and opened their hearts and it gave them a sense of um, tenderness and love that included the deities and the deities turned from fearsome deities that were being very irritating and, and you know, making all sorts of wild shrieks and sounds to try to scare the monks away to serving the monks because loving kindness won them over. So that was the origin of the metta practice and 
many of you have experienced how no matter what's going on, if you make a gesture of kindness toward yourself, any gesture of kindness, could be a simple touch of the hand on the heart, it could be some words to yourself of kindness, any gesture, it starts to reconnect you with the truth of loving presence. So that's one pathway in the midst of fear, even if it feels mechanical, a gesture of kindness can begin to help that remembering to happen. Often the words, many, many of you know I often use the words, it's okay, sweetheart. Um, I often use the words, I'm sorry, and I love you. That, that came from a, a Hawaiian healer. I really invite you to experiment and find the words that are meaningful to you, that, that by offering them you feel a sense of warmth, softness. In a similar way, we're talking about the pathways that kind of open up and soften the heart, Sangha, our community, is priceless. I see it happening in the group interviews and I'll, and I'll share from, I think it was about a couple of years ago, I did a, an interview with a, a group and one woman described waiting to get the results of a biopsy. And for anyone that's been through that or anything parallel, you know the, the fear of that one. Okay, another person, a man had his son, his son was in an addiction facility and he had been through so many rounds that he was fearful for his son's life. Another woman, her husband, couldn't find work and it was really destroying his sense of confidence in the world. A young woman had an eating disorder and felt like it was going to get in the way if she was ever going to have intimacy in her life. I'm just giving you an example. They were all in one group. And this isn't unusual. This is life. This is us. Okay? But by naming it out loud... And this, I had an interview later with the woman who was waiting for the biopsy. It was amazing. She said, you know, when the fear would come up, she imagined herself in that circle and she heard everybody's fears and hurts and so on. And it really, she experienced that shift from my fear to the fear. That's enlarging. That's even, even if the fear is still there and has a grip, there's some bigger space, there's more space and presence. It's beginning to transform. The understanding is that as we encounter the wrathful deities, the fearful deities, that in moving through, in the presence with, there's a kind of untangling and the, the essence of the deities begins to infuse us. So as you're present with the fearful deity, that essence, which is tender, begins to infuse your being. That's what she started feeling, more tenderness. So part of the practice with fear is to go ahead and reach out to others, to feel our connection with others. There's so much science about, you know, somebody's really afraid and they hold hands with somebody else that they care about. When an instrument's measuring the brain, they can see the fear activation go down. 
It makes a difference. Annie Lamott says, My mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone. Right? So we don't have to feel alone in it. So a story about the power of togetherness in, in opening our sense of our being uh, was shared by a Raya Mountain dancer who uh, describes teaching a, a workshop and a woman came up to her at the end of the workshop, a very anxious, small, thin woman, introduced herself as Isabel and said, can I do this meditation on my own? And so Araya answers, yes, I'm sure you can, although many people find it easier to establish a meditation practice with the help of a group. It's hard to keep the discipline up on your own. But what will it give me, Isabel asked. What will I get if I do it every day? And her tone took on a whining quality. Uh, How fast will it work? Will I feel a difference after a week? Will I know it's working? This was exactly the kind of thing I detested, the quest for the quick fix, the desire for guaranteed outcomes, a simple answer. Do this, you'll get that. My sons were waiting for me and I wanted to go home. So I took a deep breath and looked directly at Isabel and set my knapsack down on the floor. I tried to slow down my words, thinking that maybe if I spoke slower I would feel more patient. Well, I said, meditation is more a process than a goal-oriented activity. It can help you become more aware of what's going on within and around you. It can help reduce stress. My best advice is to try it and just be patient with yourself. I picked up my bag and started to button my coat. I really did have to leave and I wanted to get out while I was feeling virtuous for not snapping her head off. (laughs) But as I started to move away, Isabel suddenly reached out and grabbed my arm with surprising strength. But what I want to know, she said, her voice rising in a crescendo that bordered on real panic, is will it help me find God? If I meditate, Well, I have an experience of something or someone out there listening, something really with me. A wave of desperation swept out from her through me and I was surprised to find my eyes filled with tears. This woman wasn't looking for an easy answer or a guaranteed formula because she was lazy. She didn't want a simple plan because she was unable or unwilling to think critically about what would work. She wanted something she knew would work and work quickly because she was hanging on by her fingernails. She wanted something that would work in a week because she was afraid that she simply wasn't going to make it through the months or years. I put my hand gently over Isabel's where it gripped my arm. It's okay, Isabel. We all feel desperate at times, I said. Nobody does it by themselves. We all need help. Her hand relaxed a little beneath mine and she started to cry. We talked for a while. There is no them. There's only us. When I left, I did not leave one of them. I said goodbye to one of us, a human being doing the best she can, searching for the home for which all our hearts long. We all do long to realize the truth of what we are, that vastness, that love, that presence that really is our home. 
We have that longing. So in the same way that we can reach out to each other and begin to feel that sense of that enlarged identification or that large beingness with each other, when we're practicing we can reach out. We can remember or reconnect with something larger on purpose. Now if we reach out and it's a grasping, or if we reach out because we're trying to get away from something, we won't be reminded, we won't reconnect. But if our aspiration is really sincere, that we want to reach out to realize the truth, to realize the truth that's beyond the story of separation, that very sincerity in prayer can carry us. It's like the voice of awareness that's calling us home. I really think of aspiration that way. It's the voice of our own heart, our our wise heart calling us home. So it's a practice, this calling out. It's a practice of refuge that's very, very powerful. And if you haven't explored it, I invite you to explore it. And if you're already exploring it, to continue the experiment because it's a life practice. And the basics of it are to simply feel honestly that place of vulnerability, the pain of separation, and it's from that place that feels separation and longs to know something larger that we reach out with that longing. And reach out to whatever you intuit as the source of belonging. For some, it may be a deity or a spiritual figure from you might sense you might sense uh, your mother who's passed away or a grandmother or part of nature or you might sense your dog and that, that loving energy of the dog that you know when you can feel it helps to connect you. It can be anything that's a source of loving connection. And imagine receiving the love you want. I can say for myself that when I reach out, there's not a, a formed figure as much as a sense of love and light and presence, very awake presence that's, that's tangible almost in terms of intuitively. The sense is out there. And I call on that to just bathe me. And I, and I imagine and sense light just filling me, just bathing and suffusing every cell. And if I'm really let a receptivity happen, then I become merged with that light. And fear can still be there, but there's plenty of room. It's like many of you have heard the metaphor, if you put dye in a sink, it colors the water in the sink. But if you put it in a lake, there's plenty of room. We call on loving presence and sense that loving presence, there's room. And to say that I've done it probably tens of thousands of times. So it doesn't feel like I'm manipulating to get somewhere else. It feels like authentically a remembering. I kind of know how to remember something that's always here, but I have a habit of forgetting. One of my favorite examples or stories of this uh, was shared by Frank Ossesescu, who's the founder of the Zen Hospice. And he was accompanying one man who was very close to death, and it was a man that he had come very 
that they had become very, very dear to each other. This man was dying of stomach cancer, a lot of pain. And of course, when there's pain, there's often a lot of fear. In fact, the suffering's not usually the physical pain, it's the fear around it. So the man asked him to guide him in meditation. And Frank began to guide him in a meditation of presencing with that, that experience. And the man said, no, it's too painful. And so Frank offered to place his hand on his belly to help him with the pain. And that helped some, but it was still too painful. And so then Frank brought his hand out a little distance from the man's belly and he said, oh, that's lovely. Okay, there's a little more space. It's still difficult though. So he even put his hand out a little bit more. And um, the man said, "That, that really works. And then Frank invited him just to rest in that experience. And the man said... Oh, rest in love. Rest in love. And from then on to his death, that was his mantra. That he would just sense that that space that was holding, that awareness, that kindness that was holding the pain, holding his dying body, and rest in that. He couldn't directly penetrate into the pain, nor should he have. And the point isn't that. It's to, that we need to find enough space so we can be with. Rest in love. Okay, now, we've been talking thus far about how to remember the oceanness so we have room for the waves. Here's the shadow side of that. We get addicted to strategies that will help us feel this vastness, but there's a subtle aversion to touching the waves. Does that make sense? You're kind of pulling away a little. So as much as we need to feel that rest and love, we need to be contacting the realness and aliveness in an embodied way. And the key word here is embodied, coming into the body, contacting the waves. And the way of that is to pause enough when you can sense that a lot's happening and sense that there's going to be some aversion to what's happening, just to feel your aspiration, just to sense, okay, this is an engagement with the life that's here, an opportunity for sacred fertilization, an opportunity for a liberating presence, and just know that's your intention to be there, okay? Pause enough. And then just to begin to note, you can name what's going on, that can help, just to put a name to it. One uh, monk was asked how he dealt with pain, and when, when he said, well, imagine a big dog's running towards you, well, I whistle for it. You know, just, okay, let's lean in a bit. For many people, the breathing, and the, the breath with tonglen is a very powerful breath of working with a fear, because when you breathe in, it's like, in some, it's that willingness to be touched, that willingness to contact with the in-breath. And then with the out-breath, you're sensing the space that holds it. So in a way, you're doing both. Contact the wave, feel the ocean with the out-breath. I invite you to experiment with that. The more presence, contact, embodied presence, the more the fear becomes a gateway to sacred space. So, right now what I'd like to do is read you. Remember the teacher, the mindfulness teacher at the beginning of this talk that I told you about? 
who said, well, there's a lot of love, but then there's this fear thing. Okay, so she spent some time in investigating the relationship, and here's what she wrote. I notice when fear is in me that it brings a sense of isolation. And until I sit in silence and feel the vulnerability, that's what's happening. But then if I really feel the vulnerability, I start feeling the tenderness of my life, and then tears come. And then I start feeling the preciousness of life itself. Then it's clear there's nothing to do, nothing to try to solve, nothing else. That's it. Just this tenderness of life. And only then can I feel trust in life. It's a form of love. When there's that trust, we can rest. We're not resisting anymore. It's an experiment for each of us, and I'll probably just share one more story as part of closing. It's an experiment for each of us how we do some of the skillful means of offering kindness, being with others, reaching out to sense of belonging, you know, really calling on and reaching out for a sense of enlarged belonging, and that very direct contacting with this very deep, subtle movement of fear in the body. It's an experiment to sense it. And the story I wanted to share about the, the weave, really, of those um, was something I experienced about 10 years ago, and I've had revisitations, but this was very extreme and memorable. And I had a, a very distinct experience that I was about to die. And um, some of you know that I had a concussion. I went to, I was a, actually at a Tibetan retreat, and I had a concussion. And I didn't realize how bad a concussion it was. And over the next six to eight months, I started finding out how bad it was. Um, I had this uh, bradycardia where my blood pressure would go really, really low and my heart and my blood pressure would go down. So on one occasion I was home alone and I went into that state and I thought I was going to die and I thought I should go to an emergency room. But probably many of you have encountered this where you think maybe you should but maybe you don't have to and it's such a hassle. Did you know that one? Okay, well, somehow or other, I landed up leaning on the side of, boy, I really don't want to if I can get through this alive. And yet, the possibility of dying felt sufficiently real that I kept wondering if I was really being foolish. Like, it would be kind of an embarrassing way to go if I, you know, could have done something. <laughs> Embarrassment wasn't the worst of my problems, though. <laughs> I decided not to go. So my intention was just to be with, with the fear. And so the story would keep arising. Well, wait a minute. This, I really could be dying. Like, really, really. It wasn't just, it wasn't like just a nice spiritual idea of this might be it. It was like organismic, really. And so I'd pause and try to feel, and it was huge and bottomless. And I couldn't do it. I, I could not open to the enormity of that feeling because I had the sense that if I opened to it, that would be like agreeing to die and I'd die. So if I opened to the fear, I would die of it. That was just how it felt. And I tried everything else I knew about. I tried calling on love. 
and calling on light. And I'd feel a little better, but it was really a kind of calling on where I was kind of getting away from. And as soon as the thoughts would come up again of, whoa, I could be dying right now. That all just was like ideas. And, I, and there was this huge, bottomless, achy pit that if I let myself lean into, I'd be gone. And so I could, it's like I, the ego I, could not agree. Like it was all there was was resistance. And I kept cycling with that. So finally, there was a voice, sometimes it happens there's a voice, there's not always, that just said, it's okay, the resistance is okay, it's part of it too. And the voice was really, really kind. It was just like, okay, resistance. It's not like you're asking for resistance, it's just resistance is here, this too. And in the moments of surrendering to the realness of, oh, it's, it's like I can't, it's like the I can't do anything. The ego can't will itself to die. And letting it be okay that the resistance was there and having a quality of not resisting the resistance, there was some space. Now I'd like to say the space got infused with love and I was happily ever after, but I had a number more rounds, but what I started getting a sense of, and it wasn't like I could do anything, was that it was all just happening and the only aspiration I could have was to let it be okay with some tenderness. That was it. But each subsequent round of the tenderness, there was less of a sense of me as the self that could be dying and more was resting in that just the awareness that was recognizing what was going on. It was a really important recognition, a humbling one, of how limiting it is. We can't will things. Any of these weather systems come, we have this notion we shouldn't be feeling it or we should be able to manage it. Have you noticed that? There's a profound freedom that comes when we just get, there's, there's nothing, there's no to do, there's a surrendering into what is, and even the surrendering we can't well. We can have an aspiration to rest in love, and that's about it. The poet Kaviri, this is a poem called, Who Says I Can't Meditate in My Sleep? I search for a buoy in this storm as the black waves threaten to kill me. The mind buoy has me swimming in 20 directions, my muscles cramping in fear. The body buoy asks me to just float and feel the true weight of my worries. The breath buoy suggests I die dissolving into the ocean itself, the rise and fall of all experiences and wise stillness underneath. Sometimes the image of a path is um, climbing a ladder to perfection. We had one, one in one of our groups we explored that. Sometimes it's a journey to a mountaintop. Pema Chodron, I think, describes beautifully how that's a bit backwards. It's really going down and down and down. We're not climbing, trying to get away from anything. 
this is her words. She says, instead of transcending the suffering of all creatures, we move toward the turbulence and doubt. We jump into it, we move toward it however we can. We explore the reality and unpredictability of insecurity and pain and we try not to push it away. If it takes years, if it takes lifetimes, we let it be as it is. At our pace, without speed or aggression, we move down and down and down. With us move millions of others, our companions in awakening from fear. At the bottom, we discover water, the healing water of bodhicitta, that's the awakened heart. Right down there in the thick of things, we discover the love that will not die. So this feels to be such a precious invitation of our path, one that I think we intuit and that as we practice together we start touching into, that together we're being with the life that's here and discovering the love that will not die. And the process of intentional presence is a dying. I mean, there's a there's a kind of a, a letting go and sensing this oceanness, this everythingness, that we're, we're the whole. And a letting go of this wave is changing, this pattern of waves we call self is changing and going. It's insubstantial. The separate self will experience it as loss. Srinur Sargadatta puts it this way, he says, love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Between the two, my life flows. So we'll close together with a little bit of a reflection, or you can just sense how some of this might, what some of this might mean with whatever's going on in your heart and body right now. It'll be a short reflection. If you need to adjust how you're sitting, please do. just to begin and sense the sincerity of your aspiration. What really matters to you? You might sense as you survey your body, your heart, we've been calling the body a fear, if there's any sense of what you might be resisting, what's here and wanting attention, what's difficult to touch into, in a way what I described as that cat hair that's having an influence but maybe not so conscious. If you scan your body, you might find it just in the form of some tension you are holding. Or there may be some story in your mind that has been going on today that you know underneath it there's something that's hard to be with. 
And you might just sense in your heart the, the kind of vulnerability that's sometimes just there, that just wants attention. And for now you might just let yourself feel your breath, letting the in-breath be one of a willingness to touch what's here. And the out-breath, a remembrance of the space around you, the interior space, just that there is a larger field of being that you can breathe into. Breathing in and contacting whatever might want attention. Breathing out and seeing if you can sense the space within and around that experience. Let it float a bit. As you're breathing in, and if you really let yourself feel in and in and in gently, you might find that space, that interior space, that the constellation of sensations arises out of. As you breathe out, you might sense the possibility of resting in something larger. We close with the words of Rumi, I am water, I am the thorn that catches someone's clothing. There's nothing to believe. Only when I quit believing in myself did I come into this beauty. Day and night I guarded the pearl of my soul. Now, in this ocean of pearling currents, I've lost track of which was mine. Namaste, and thank you for your attention. The teaching you have received has been freely offered. If you'd like to make a donation, learn more about my schedule or programs offered by the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, please visit tarabrock.com and our imcw.org.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.